Let's say a prayer together before we get the Scriptures this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're always grateful to be able to gather together in this school. Thankful for the work of the engineer who came and opened the door this morning early so the teams could come in and set up and practice. Thankful for all the people behind the scenes who make it possible for us to feel, feel welcome here. Thank you that they're willing to host a lunch for our covenant members today downstairs that we can eat in the same cafeteria that the kids eat in week in and week out. We continue to pray your blessing, God, and your shalom peace on this school, on the lives of the children. We pray uh, encouragement to the teachers, wisdom to the administrators, and we pray that you continue to give us eyes and ears to see and hear the role you have for our church to play. Thank you for Eric. Thank you for Ann and their work and invite more of us into investing, God, relationally into the lives of the people who come in this building every day. Thank you for having us here for so many years. We're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you all. Happy March. Mill City's mission statement, as Stephanie said a minute ago, is to love our community in the name of Jesus. And we've been focused on that now for the entire time we've been a church, over eight years. And right now we're articulating the ways in which we're trying to love our community in the name of Jesus in four categories. The first one is that we want to be able to talk about the gospel with our neighbors. The second one is that we want to have conversations about the gospel and race and racial justice and building bridges across racial lines. The third one is that we want to talk about how faith influences our work and our vocation, our calling from God, makes our work meaningful in everyday life. And finally, we want to find ways to engage with people who are on the margins of cultures, however that might be defined, so, so that we can learn from them, so that those of us who are on the margins have a different kind of voice. Those are the four things that we're focused on in trying to love our community in the name of Jesus. Gospel and neighbor, gospel and race, God at work, and engaging with the marginalized. And each of you have chosen, many of you have chosen to focus on one of those in 2017 to try to grow and see what God might have for you in one of those areas. All through 2017, we're going to have different sermon series that are focused on one of those four mission priorities. And over the next month or six weeks before Easter comes, we're going to be focused on the mission priority gospel and neighbor, which simply asks the question, how do we talk about the gospel with our neighbors? Not how do we yell the gospel at our neighbors, or how do we avoid talking about the gospel with our neighbors? How do we have meaningful conversations about the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors? How do we have meaningful conversations with our neighbors about what matters the most. So think about your neighbors at your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood that you live in, whoever it is that you regularly see, that you spend the most time in. Think of those people as your neighbors. Uh, what's most important to those neighbors? Do you know their names, and do you know what's most important to them? Do you find ways to have meaningful conversations with your neighbors that aren't just about lawns or city ordinances or superficial city city type things or wherever you're living do they know 
why you do what you do with your life. Could you say to a neighbor, I went to church yesterday and we talked about talking about the gospel with neighbors. That's you. Does that make you uncomfortable? We desperately need to have meaningful conversations with neighbors in ways that build trust and relationship because I don't know if there's any other way for us to live out the commandment that Jesus gives us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When Jesus is asked what are the most important things in life, he says to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So just think about it with me over the next few weeks. How is it that God is leading you? In what environments do you have the chance to love your neighbors? Last weekend, one of my neighbors finished remodeling their basement and invited a bunch of us over to kind of celebrate the basement, celebration, the basement being finished. And so we're sitting around tables and there's kids running around, a TV got broken, that's a separate story, tragic story. But we're sitting around having these conversations and people in, you know, inevitably say, well, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do? It's people who don't know each other. And so uh, we're starting these conversations and I started talking about how I'm thinking about and working on how churches and neighborhoods can be better connected. And it sparks this amazing conversation about how this one lady's working for uh, fundraising with the Guthrie uh, Orchestra Hall and other people know folks who are working with uh, immigrants in South St. Paul who want to form a church. And like, it was almost like this door opened up. And I said it with a little bit of trepidation. Like, I think, no, these people are going to now think I'm weird or I'm trying to, but they didn't. They just jumped right in. And, and I've really become convinced the more that I step into my own feeling uncertain about how people are going to react when I try to actually have a meaningful conversation, they're less nervous about it than I am. People who aren't Christians, I think, are less nervous about having conversations with Christians than Christians are about having conversations with non-Christians. And so I think there's going to be some opportunities and I want to challenge you between now and Easter to try to have one conversation with someone that you think would consider a neighbor that's a meaningful conversation about the gospel. Okay? One conversation between now and Easter with someone you consider a neighbor that's a, a conversation about the gospel. We'll be talking more about how to do that as we go through this series. So the next few weeks, we're going to be focused on how we talk about the gospel with our neighbors. And I decided to title the series, What's So Great About Easter? Because I think that's a neighbor question that you might run into. Especially people who aren't Christians and don't practice uh, Christian faith. They might go, you know, Easter egg hunts, something. What's, so, what's, so, what's the big deal? What's so great about Easter? And I hope that through these conversations we'll be able to have some answers to that question. Each Sunday between now and Easter, we'll be focused on a different question. Here are the questions that the teaching team came up with that we think your neighbors might actually want to talk about. Or at minimum, you ought to be able to have an answer to in case it comes up in a conversation with a neighbor about why the gospel is meaningful to you. So the second question, what do I need to be saved from? Have you ever seen one of those bumper stickers that says unsaved on it? 
where there are people who know that it's somehow from the outside that Christians think people need to be saved, but they don't, you know, they either don't know what that means or they're really offended by it. So next week, JD is going to help us think about what is it we really need to be saved from, according to the Easter story. The next week, we'll talk about a common question a lot of people have. Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And what does the Easter story have to say about that? Then, uh, in the fourth week, we'll talk about why did Jesus have to die? Was it really necessary for God's Son to die as part of the story, and why? What do Christians hope for after they die? Is there a magical Christian heaven that people go to where there's only golfing? Is that what everyone's hoping for? Raise your hand if that's really what you are hoping for. Be honest. No golfers. No golfers and no sports fan in this church. It's a strange church. And finally, on on Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about why does anybody even need a king? Why do we need a leader? We live in in a country that elects presidents, right? We don't have monarchies. So why would anybody need a king in their life if Jesus is our king? So hopefully those questions will spawn more questions and really good conversations. I'm not asking you to go out and force someone to believe what you believe. I want you to have one meaningful conversation with somebody that feels a little bit like a risk to you about why the gospel is meaningful to you because I think you'll learn about how to answer your own questions in the midst of trying to answer a neighbor's questions. So today is the first Sunday of Lent and Lent is a, a Christian season in the Christian calendar. Some of you have grown up with, others it's new to you. The basic idea of Lent is that we're spiritually preparing ourselves to celebrate Easter. That we're spiritually getting ready to really feel and experience the, the, the sorrow of Good Friday and the wonder and joy of Easter Sunday. Asking these questions is a really great way to get ready for Easter. This series is designed to help you think well about why Easter is so important to us as Christians and it ought to be important to neighbors. It might not have a lot of action-oriented application. It is designed to help answer questions that we've all heard you guys asking to help you feel more confident about why Easter is so central to what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. We have to be able to answer these questions well in order to have conversations with our neighbors Some of us have really struggled. Some people in this church have really struggled to hold on to their faith. Maybe you grew up as a Christian and some of these questions don't even make sense to you anymore. You wouldn't even know how to begin to answer some of those questions. And Mill City has become a place where it's safe for you. You know it's safe for you to say, yeah, I don't really know why Jesus had to die. That doesn't make any sense to me. And we want to create an opportunity in these next six weeks to let you wonder and ask questions out loud. So don't ever feel bad if you feel like this is a question I don't know the answer to, or I have a totally different question that maybe isn't connected to the ones that you're asking. That's what we do here in this church, and I hope you feel free to do that in the next few weeks. So let's start this sermon today, the content, and looking at the scripture with the question, what's so great about Easter? Does anybody want to answer it, and then we can just go to lunch? What's so great about Easter? Chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, if you have a Bible, is one of the most important summaries of the gospel in Scripture. And if you have uh, an opportunity this week to read through 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter, 
that would really be a great way to highlight some questions and maybe provide some answers to some of the things you're thinking about. I'm going to read just a portion of it from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, and then from 12 to 22. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church that he helped to start in the city of Corinth. The people in the city of Corinth fancy themselves very spiritual people. They, they think they know a lot and that they've grown a lot and that they're as spiritual as anybody. And that's part of Paul's challenge as he's writing to them. So he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, otherwise known as Peter, and then to the Twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's another way to say they died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born, which Paul means to reference the fact that he met Jesus after falling off a donkey three years, about, about three years after Jesus had risen. Verse 12, skipping down to verse 12, he says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He doesn't have trouble bluntly telling the people he's leading what he really thinks, right? Our preaching is useless, and your, your faith... Okay, moving on. More than that, we are then found, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. We're telling lies about who God is. For we have testified about God that, that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are also lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. That's an important line. I'll read it. Maybe I can read it correctly this time. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Then he goes on. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul is at the beginning of this chapter summarizing uh, uh, the gospel as people understand it in a way that they repeat it all the time. 
He says, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And a whole mess of people saw him. And some of those people are still alive if you want to talk to them about it. And in a nutshell, he says, this is the good news. But then as people are interpreting the good news in this church, in, this Cor in Corinth, they start to make some mistakes. Instead of seeing the resurrection as a climax of a story that starts all the way back in Genesis, God creates the earth, sin disrupts God's creation, Israel is chosen to be a blessing to the whole world. They become more selfish than they are a blessing to the whole world. And eventually Jesus has to come to be what Israel couldn't be and to do what Israel couldn't do and to give up his life for the salvation of the world. And then the story goes on until the heavens and the earth are recreated and Jesus returns. Instead of seeing it in the midst of that story, they started pulling the resurrection out and, and interpreting it in different ways, essentially removing the most important part of the story. Now, this is a lame analogy, but I'll bet you'll remember it. Taking the resurrection out of the narrative of Scripture, out of the story about God in Scripture, is a little bit like trying to play soccer without a soccer ball. Because you can get dressed up, you can put on the really amazing fancy soccer uniforms they have now, and you can get in formation, and you can go to the field, and you can even run around as if there is a ball. But eventually, people are going to look at each other and go, does anybody know why we're doing this anymore? There's no goals. There's no purpose. They're just, and sometimes, honestly, I think in church, when we lose tr track of the heart of the gospel, it's a little bit like trying to play soccer without a ball. We get all dressed up. We all have positions. We're real busy. There's a lot of running around. And then every once in a while, we sort of look at each other and go, does anybody know why we're doing this? That's what Paul's argument is here, because these folks in Corinth have made a terrible mistake. And here's the terrible mistake that they made. He says some of the Corinthians were arguing that there would be no resurrection of the dead. Now, what they meant by that was they still believed there would be life, after death, but they were offended by the idea that physical bodies, people who had died or fallen asleep, the way Paul talks about it, that physical bodies would come up from the ground and be, and be raised to life. That was disgusting. That, that idea was um, offensive to them on so many levels. For them, salvation meant escape from the brutal physical world that they lived in. These are hyper-spiritual people who have decided there's nothing about the real world that's any good. The only thing that matters is keeping yourself pure so that you can go to the place where the nasty stuff that happens on earth doesn't happen. And so they developed, I call it an escapist understanding of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, even though when he was raised, he went and showed people that he could eat fish, that he had holes in his hands, that he had scars on his side from, from where he had suffered on the cross. And he said to them, here, put your hand out. Feel me. I'm not a ghost. I'm a real person. This is my real body. 
even though that was Jesus' testimony to them, they decided that they wanted to disconnect that idea of the body being resurrected and create instead the idea of a heaven that basically has nothing to do with what's happening on earth. Paul is writing to them to try to correct this problem. Now, those of you who um, can tell where I'm going before I'm going there, realize this is a problem we all have too, isn't it? This is a very common understanding of resurrection in 21st century churches of all types, that somehow heaven is a place far off somewhere. It's like a sci-fi movie where you get to go off to a new place when you die, and it's totally disconnected from earth or anything that happens on earth. And the hope, when you hear this, the hope of heaven is to somehow be put in this place where everything is perfect and nothing goes wrong and there's no sin and no death. Paul is very carefully writing to say, that's wrong and dangerous. And I want to spend a little bit of time explaining that to you because I think it's really essential to answering any of these questions that we want to have in conversations with each other or neighbors. So here's the best sentence I can to describe this in one sentence for you. If you want to write this down, this would be a good summary of the sermon. Paul's point here is that death is not the end of the story for any of us. And in capital letters, what we do with our lives and with our bodies lasts forever. Just leave that up on the screen for a while as I'm going to unpack it for just a few minutes. Death is not the end, and what we do with our lives and with our bodies lasts forever. Let me tell you what, what I, where I think Paul is, is trying to help us understand here. All the way back to the second century, a guy named Justin Martyr wrote about a heresy that he was worried about where people believe that only souls went to heaven. And he called it a very dangerous heresy because it devalued what people did in their irregular lives. It devalued what happened to people's bodies. It devalued what happened to God's creation. It made it seem like whatever was happening to us physically or whatever was happening in the world that God created is kind of just to be survived until you can get released from that place to the better place. Is that making sense to you? I'm worried I'm boring you to death, so if anyone can nod at me occasionally, that will encourage me. Or you can just get up and walk out, and I'll understand. Death is not the end, and we do what we do with our lives and our bodies lasts forever. So this heresy of thinking that bodies don't matter, that what we do with our bodies don't matter, created all these problems in churches of people being disconnected from the world. And I, last year, I read this book I mentioned to you once. It's by a guy named Ta-Nehisi Tan, Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Amazing writer. Writes this book as an African-American guy, writing to his teenage son, preteen son, about how to live in the United States with a black body. And really the thesis of the book is that you have to understand how to live with a black body in white America. And it's a heart-wrenching story about a guy who suffered a lot of 
racial injustice himself growing up in Baltimore and is now really afraid as a dad because his son has a black body. And as I read that book, I was in tears at the end of the book because I realized as a white dad, I've never once worried about my son's body. Just as a, as a human being, I haven't worried about that other than my one son is huge and tends to sit on people. I worry about that, but other than that. And I remember as I've looked back on the history of slavery and of racism, that one of the justifications for slavery among anybody, and even among Christian people, was one, that black people didn't count as full humans, right? They were a percentage of human. And two, there were debates about whether or not black people had souls. Now, why would it matter if black people had souls if you didn't think their bodies were fully human? It would matter if you were a Christian person because you believe the soul is the most important thing, right? So even if they're not totally a human being and they have a soul, then you might feel some Christian conviction to try to share the gospel with them. But if you don't think they have a soul and you already don't think their body's really worth what anybody else's body is worth, then you don't have to worry about sharing the gospel with any of them. That was an active conversation. And, and when I started to read and think about the importance of believing in the bodily resurrection, that Jesus is going to raise up our physical bodies and transform them into a new being that can exist in, in eternity when heaven and earth come together. That's what we're hoping for. I thought, wow, if that theology had been more understood and embraced during slavery, I would hope that Christian people would go, no, it doesn't even matter whether you are having the soul debate, we are offending these people's bodies. These are bodies that were created by God. Just because their skin color is different from your skin color doesn't mean that you can treat them as if they have no value. So here's the larger point. That understanding the resurrection the way that Paul is trying to help us understand it here, where death is not the end, and what we do right now with our lives and our physical bodies really matters, means that we have to treat everyone as full created beings of God with equal value, right? That's not, a, that's not an option for a Christian person to think of anyone but as someone who was uniquely created by God and what happens to their body and what they do with their body has some kind of eternal consequences. If only our souls go to heaven, then nothing we do here really matters except for making sure as many souls go to heaven as possible, right? But if our bodies matter, if, if God intends to raise us up, then everything we do matters. Then your work matters. Then your relationship matters. Then what you do interpersonally with other people, then your, your sexual ethic matters. Everything you do matters. Not because there's a list of rules that God says this is right and this is wrong, but because you're being formed into someone who's going to exist for all eternity. That's all because of resurrection. And Paul says if there is no resurrection, then we might as well just eat and drink because we're going to die and it doesn't matter. I thought of three scenarios that, uh, in just one line that try to summarize 
what could be wrong about what Paul's writing, or what could be wrong about what the Corinthians thought about resurrection. So, so here they are. See if one of these might connect with a neighbor that you know. Think of your neighbor for a second. If death is the end, let's just say death is the end of your story. It's where life stops and there's nothing after that. Then what Paul says is, enjoy your life, right? Anybody know a neighbor who that's probably their life philosophy, right? Okay. If death isn't the end, if death isn't the end, but only souls go to heaven, and what we do really doesn't make a big difference, then the only thing we ought to do is make sure that as many souls go to heaven as possible, right? No nodding? I don't know what that means. If death isn't the end, here's the third one, if death isn't the end and we're judged by what we do, this is a lot of religious worldview, okay? If death is not the end and we're all gonna be judged by what we do in our lives, then we have to earn life in eternity and everything we do is put on a scorecard. Then you think you should think of death as a scorecard when you get to be judged by whether you did well enough to achieve something after you die. And Paul is saying all those things are wrong. The end, death is not the end. It isn't that souls only go to heaven. And it isn't that there's a scorecard waiting for you at the end of your life. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, here's the gospel, the good news, and why Easter is so great. Because the grace of God has already forgiven you and set you free from any scorecard that could be given to you. And because you're free, now you can embrace the fact that everything you do with your life matters. Because you know you're being formed into someone that's going to live forever. You're not trying to measure up by what you do. You're like a son or a daughter of a king who says, I have already accomplished this for you. I have already paid any debt that you had. I forgive whatever you've done. Now, let's get going. I have amazing things for you to do. I've given you these gifts, and I have a plan for how to use those gifts for us to work together to save the world and convince the world of the good news that they don't have to measure up. We have spent over the last hundred years trying to separate out the gospel into either it's just good news that death is not the end or what we do right now matters. And we sometimes call them the spiritual gospel and the social gospel. The division of those two things is so dumb. And it's hurting the church. It is both of those things. It is both true that what Jesus has accomplished for us allows us, not because of anything that we've accomplished, to be free from our sins, forgiven, called a child of God, and given victory over death, because that's who God is, and that's God's grace in our lives, by faith in Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. And, in capital letters, we have now an opportunity to become people who participate with God's mission to save the world and recreate things in God's image. And we've been given gifts to do that. And what we do with our lives every day, the way we treat our neighbors, matters to God every moment. Why would any of this matter to my neighbor 
Ashish, come up here before you have to get that clock that tells me I preach too long, will you? Bring the band up. I'm almost done. Why would any of this matter to my neighbor, you might say? Here's a couple of brief ideas, and I want to encourage you to try to have meaningful conversations with neighbors that could lead to trust and relationship where you can just say, here's what matters most to me. Why would any of this matter to my neighbor? Because our neighbors are struggling with these two things. Our neighbors, just like us, are struggling with the effects of death, aren't they? And our neighbors are searching for meaning and purpose in their lives. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, anchored in the resurrection of Jesus, answers both of those needs. Many of our neighbors are suffering the effects of death in their lives. They need to feel and experience the good news that death is not the end. In my neighborhood, in just the last couple years, on my street, people have lost babies in pregnancy, marriages have ended, people have lost parents, people are battling illnesses, people are struggling to make ends meet financially. They are experiencing the effects of death and sin in the world, aren't they? And I know those stories because I get to sit with them and I share my stories with them too. Many of our neighbors feel the pressure of keeping up with the demands of the cultures that we live in. Despite the enormous wealth of our country, many people are stressed out trying to keep up. They need to experience the freedom that comes with believing they are already enough because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. To get ready for Easter, we need to be reminded of what is so great about Easter. The death, of res the death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It's the cornerstone of Christian faith. If you take it out, you don't have anything else. You just have a bunch of people running around pretending to be church. It offers us forgiveness, freedom, and victory through faith in Jesus Christ over death. It affirms the value of our bodies. It affirms what we're doing in our lives. It helps emphasize the importance of caring for God's creation and the work that we are invited to do day in and day out. These things will be redeemed by God so that they last forever. And we need desperately to talk to our neighbors about these things. Sometimes our neighbors understand this better than we do, yeah? We need to talk to our neighbors about what matters most. We cannot just have superficial conversations about firewood and, and uh, you know, what was left in the alley and whether or not you're going to get towed because of the snow emergency. We got to have real conversations with people. We need to know their names. We need to eat with them. We need to pray for them and with them. We need to share vulnerably why we live our lives the way we do. We need to admit that we're Christians. We need to admit that we're part of a church. We need to be proud of the things that that church does in the neighborhood. That's what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves in the 21st century. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are good. Jesus, you have paid the price for us. You have done for us what we were not able to do for ourselves. And by your grace, you have offered to us. You have offered to us a gift of love and affirmation and forgiveness that we don't deserve, that we didn't earn, that you don't expect us to earn. We just have to receive it. And Jesus, you have called us 
to join the greatest work there is. To show the world that you, God, loved it so much that you sent your son to die on a cross that everyone would be saved. Saved from everything that separates us from you. God, give us the courage to have meaningful conversations with people that we interact with day in and day out. Don't let those opportunities pass us by. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.